0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be. The time is TBD, but you know where we'll be. My name is Kathleen. My name is Angela, and we are your TBD hosts. Thank you all for stumbling upon this podcast, but also for sticking around and giving it a listen. To start off a new season of podcasting, we present to you an episode about women in ancient Rome. Join me and two other classicists in talking about the role of women in ancient Rome, their depiction in art, as well as in literature, but also speaking on the restrictions placed on Roman women and the lack of female voices, both in history and in the current field of classics. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Megan and Shay to talk about women in ancient Rome. So I had the privilege of meeting both of these lovely people on a Living Latin in Rome program with the Paideia Institute, where we spoke Latin, read Latin and learned about ancient Roman history. Um, so, Megan, tell us a little bit about what you do beyond working with the Paideia Institute.
1: Uh, sure. Uh, I'm currently a grad student at Brown University in their classics program. And uh, my focus is on uh, theater in ancient Italy and how that uh contributes to sort of ethnic and identity formation.
0: Very cool. Um, Shay, will you tell us a little bit about what you do with the pie Dance too, outside of that, anything?
2: Okay, of course. So I am a, currently the executive assistant of the ROM office. So I schedule and do marketing and help wherever I am needed. Um, I have been a Rome fellow as well. That's how you met me. So I got to lead some lovely people around Rome and talk to them and make really amazing connections and tell them about my personal interest and my personal research in how uh, women throughout history have been either hyper-masculinized or hyper in order to either bestow power upon them and make it more digestible to the population or take away their power and make it so that women could not be in certain roles.
0: That's so cool. All right, so let's talk about uh, women in ancient Rome. So based on my understanding, there was a significant change sort of in the role of women from the Republic to the Roman Empire, Um, especially with imperial women. There was all of a sudden this great spotlight on them because oftentimes the success of their husbands uh, careers would often lie in their public image as well. Um, So would you guys say that this change in the role of women was a step towards kind of pot- positive change in general for women? Um. And in comparison to the Republic, did women actually hold more power? And any of you guys can start.
1: Well, I'd say as with most most things with ancient Rome, it's a little bit hard to say. Um, and there's sort of a, a spectrum. I think under the Republic, um, certainly there's, there's less, um, as you say, spotlight or... Uh, sort of structured power available to women certainly like compared to the rest of the ancient Mediterranean Roman women had something of a better situation you know they were uh allowed to you know move sort of freely uh throughout the city in a way that like for example Ath- like Athenian women were not able to uh they were able to file for divorce things like that um and it's true that under the empire like particular women uh You know, of the imperial family, have um, much more influence uh, in a in a political and structured way. On the other hand, I'm thinking about things like the Augustan moral reforms. Augustus passed a bunch of these laws uh, about, um, you know, restricting uh, various, you know, rights and things that people could do. Encouraging people to get married, encouraging people to have children. And in many ways that I think limited the ways that women could, could function uh, under the empire. So it's hard to say, I think. Um, Shay, do you have thoughts? I mean, I completely
2: agree. It's like, it's impossible to, for me, I guess, to reduce things to like, whether it was more positive or more negative in terms of things, but in terms of like different law or different times in Roman history, but I do think there's always times that you can point to in whatever situation Rome was going through where you would have one woman or one, like, exemplum of this person that did do something that, like, broke out of the box that people were trying to put women women into, but you can also point to, like, people like Livia, (laughs) who, like, absolutely got like unnecessary backlash for things and it's it's always a give and take and it's completely the way that we view pretty much any time in ancient roman history we're always looking through the veil of what type of literature we have been presented with and so we're always reading it like we're almost like reading between the lines or back reading things because we don't really have the real voices of the people that we're trying to talk about and we're trying to see now. And that's something that I find very frustrating, but also very interesting in a lot of ways.
0: Mm -hmm. And could you kind of talk a little bit about that, like, lack of female voice? And just so our listeners know, like, what was that mainly due to?
2: We have a lot of writing from mostly powerful men. We don't have a lot of writing from women. We don't have a lot of writing from people of lower classes, right? So we, a lot of people will chalk this up to the fact that the people that were the most educated, the people that had the most liter- literacy, the people that wrote the most were these fairly powerful men but we do have some like glimmers especially of women because they're like Megan even said like Roman women had a lot more like leniency in term in terms of even education where like women were able to get some sort of education again only the the ones that had money and were already able to have some amount of power so we really like don't have writing from like ancient women we kind of start with like when like saints start being able to write down what they want so it's many many moons after the period that like I study but I think the only woman correct me if I'm wrong is sulpicia really that we have like extant writing of that we can look back and say like this is a ancient roman woman writing Mm
1: -hmm. and other
2: than that like it's all things that other people have said about
1: women
0: Mm -hmm. and would you guys say like that the education of women was driven by um like kind of a will to actually improve like the engage in um kind of improving their knowledge or was it more driven by the fact that people thought women needed to educate their sons, like their children's, and that's why they received education?
1: I think I would, I mean, I I think it's probably some combination, but I would lean towards the latter. Um, And in particular, it's interesting because um, like, there's a lot of talk about like Julius Caesar's mother um, having you know, influenced his, his style and having really quote unquote pure Latin. Because even though we've said that women were, you know, had more freedom of movement in Rome, they, upper class women in particular still spent most of their time in the domestic sphere. And so they didn't, you know, go out and, and talk as much to the wide variety of, um, classes and people of different, you know, ethnic background say if their latin was their second or third language and so you know their their linguistic um change was much less and so there's this sense that you know like caesar is famously you know straightforward to read right and has very like pure style and sometimes that's attributed to the fact that um his mother was able to to educate him um not in a like structured classroom way but had this influence on him uh, and so that is that is one piece that's interesting because we can see that they value women you know to a certain extent as intellectual beings um but only in this one you know sort of limited set of of circumstances
0: mm-hmm. um so i kind of want to segue into um the portrayal of women in literature whether that be in satire um in other type of like romantic poetry etc so um for example, like in the Metamorphoses, I know like uh, I talked to Shay about this earlier, um, but in the myth of Daphne and Apollo, and I think in large part due to modern translations, we think that Daphne kind of just passively agrees and accepts um, Apollo's actions. Um, and so thinking about this kind of like even pervading narrative that we learn about in classrooms today, like how do you think poets have shaped public sentiment towards women with their portrayals of goddesses and mythological women?
2: an awesome question I love this Uh, yeah so like just starting with like the Apollo and Daphne thing and I do think actually this could be fun because I think Megan and I have like slightly different ideas on this which is cool Uh, because like one of the reasons that I talked to you about it is we saw the Galleria Borghese right and I I have a very big love of the two Bernini statues, the Daphne and Apollo and the, um, Persepina and Pluto statue. Um, I think they are absolutely incredible for mostly the reason that to me, when I look at them, I do not see the romanticizing of like anything. I think that these are clear to me, these stat, like when you look at the, The thing that everyone always talks about, which is Hades or Pluto's, like, hand on the, like, thigh of Persephone. And you can see it, like, push into her. And she's, like, this little, little normal-sized human being. Like, she looks like my five-foot-four self is up there. I'm five-two. It's fine. Uh, Is up there, like struggling with all of her entire being and just absolutely cannot do anything to get away. And this man, and I think that Bernie needed great on this with both Hades and Hades, Pluto and Apollo where like, they are just, they're not like these larger than life gods that people, especially in the Renaissance tend to like make huge and imposing to show that they're godly this is like don't get me wrong Hades there is ripped, like he is not a normal size man but he is he looks like someone who works out a lot he's like a six foot little marble dude but no matter what even if he's just a man and she is herself she's not going to be getting away and she is pushing with All of her being up and she's trying to get away and you know that he is dragging her down. And that's the same thing that I feel with the Daphne portrayal where it's like you can see all of her body weight moving. She is already moving and she is and people say like that Bernini is the only sculptor to have ever like actually read Latin, which I find funny because then you see it and you read like the actual... Of it, like the actual words that he says. And to me, the way that Bernini depicts them is what I read when I read it. But then you have people who translate it and say that Daphne nodded her branches, like yes, and they use the word nodded, but like the Latin doesn't say that. It, she shook her branches, she entirely shook her branches. So To me, that is something that is entirely significant. And especially when you continue further and it's like, well, he didn't get to rape Daphne because she finally like she turned into a friggin tree. He didn't get to get her, but he still strips her of her very leaves and branches and turns her into like the literal symbol of conquest after that. So he didn't get to get exactly what he wanted, but he still took care. So to me, like, there's a lot of, especially like Renaissance translations that take things that I don't even read the Latin saying. But there's a lot of very interesting things that go on later when we start like, the renaissance where we're like oh yay we have new latin stuff where then people translate it the way that they want women to be read and i think that gets into a whole nother conversation about things not saying that like my whole my whole thing is about this whole like women in literature in the ancient world being depicted as like a a woman with a man's heart you have it with Cloilia, you have it with Agrippina, you have it later with Matilda of Canossa. Like, in order to say this woman has claim on power and can be powerful, you say she's a woman. So I'm not saying like, or she's a man, but it's not like I'm saying all depictions of women in the ancient world were terrible. Does that make sense? I don't know. I rambled because I get excited.
0: No, it makes sense. Yeah. Megan, do you have thoughts?
1: I have many thoughts. Um, <clears throat> well, so first of all, I think that um, yeah, it's it's good for us to start from the the premise that um, many depictions of women in in Latin literature uh, come from uh, situations in which the woman is is subject to violence or brutalization in some way like that's straight up true and and important to to acknowledge um i think one of the um, things that's been most positive i think in the last 10 15 years is that people are starting to talk about that more um and and that wasn't always true um in fact i think the analogy to um some of the sculptures is is a good one of people are like oh this is just such a beautiful sculpture and like don't think about the the like horrible thing that it's depicting. Ovid's poetry is so beautiful and people, especially people who are men or who have not themselves um, been subject to gendered violence, like don't think that through of like what that's looking at. So I think in some ways the like aesthetic um, extremes can sometimes blind people to that and so it's nice that um, those conversations are being opened up more. Um, That said, yeah, I think, um, you know, this question of, of what do you do with all the rape in Ovid is, is a tough one. I think reasonable people can disagree on this. Um, I think to take the, the Apollo and Daphne story as an example, um, it's a good one because I, I think it's representative of a lot of what goes on, on an Ovid in which the woman has agency and, you know, she, um, certainly like has um you know has her own sense of self and and it's clear like what she's you know what she does and doesn't want and she's a full person um it's true that the um you know the way that it's depicted in the end where she uh is turned into a tree with the help of her father which i always think is sort of an interesting piece there um she doesn't rescue herself right Um, and then she seems to nod when Apollo says, uh, that, uh, she's going to be his tree. Um, I personally would read Nuto as, as, which I believe is the Latin word there as meaning nod, but, um, we can debate that, uh, when we have more time. Um, and so that's, that's kind of complicated too, right? Because it's like, on the one hand, I do think that Ovid does a good job of, um, portraying the, like, intense fear and and subjectivity of of Daphne there, comparing her to a, you know, a, an, a prey animal, things like that. Um, but also, uh, and, like, the details there are really vivid. But then also, yeah, she sort of seems to capitulate at the end. But what choice does she have is another thing, right? At that point, she's a tree, and he's a god. Um, and so... It's easy, I you know there. I think there's a lot of nuance, and I think that's one of the things that's so generative about it is that people can can debate it. Um, I mean, one thing about Ovid overall, people often say, like you know, oh, I hate Ovid. There's just so much rape. It's like horrible and hard to read. And that's, I mean, that's true. And and so I I would never like suggest that people have to read Ovid, but one of the things that I think is interesting about Ovid is the way that, again, that like subjectivity of of women is often highlighted and i think partly it's that like there's so much violence that it feels like he's just like glorifying in it you know he's like you know enjoying it in some way and you know i don't know maybe that's true but i think also like if you think about um like the uh the story of uh or kind who's uh raped by neptune and then he asked her like i'll grant you a wish basically and she asked to be turned into a man Um, and he also gives her like impenetrable skin or something. Uh, and so, but like, that's a case that to me, like with Daphne seems really, um, sensitive to the experience of, of women or of, you know, people subject to violence in that moment. And so a lot of it's hard to read. It's weird that so much of it, um, is violent to us. I think, I think in some way it reflects the world that Ovid's living in. But, um, I also think that the nuance there is generative for us as readers and and useful for us to think about like how all this is working together. I
2: mean if we don't read them and we don't teach like the statues in the gallery of Borghese, the way that like we would see them, the way that like I see the Daphne and Apollo, the way that I read Ovid, if we're, Completely not teaching those things, I think that we run the risk of, like, erasure and of not understanding and of not giving people the chance to understand it in a different way than, like, oh, that's just a pretty thing, that's pretty words. Or seeing it as just this, like, glorification and not, I think that's reductive to see it all as just, like, glorifying something. And we miss a lot when we do that. To
0: touch on kind of uh, the portrayal of women in um, statues um, and artworks, do you guys feel that there is sort of a pervading archetype of a woman that's being displayed? And sort of to what extent can we actually recognize individual women or is every statue kind of just a depiction of what an ideal woman was? Like, was there, was that an issue?
2: The question. Um, I don't know. The the statue that like, that, that is something that always bothers me, especially being somebody that has gone through lots of ancient Roman museums, is like there aren't a lot of women. It's mostly like a woman is there because she's either a goddess or she is being portrayed as someone like Daphne and someone like Persephone and someone even like Deercy if you think about like the the Farnese Bowl, you know where it's like or Lita is portrayed a lot and these are all as people that then are one pit stop in an overarching narrative that is just there to further that narrative for a man uh, because you don't just like we don't have like a lot of extant women authors. We don't have a lot of just people that are women existing. You have like the the Venus Pudica, which I can go off on forever because I think there is a lot of interesting things to be said about that. But like, that's a, that's like the main portrayal of women that I can think of, and that's because she's Venus or Aphrodite. Or then you think of the fertility goddesses. You also have that. Like you have like Isis at Ephesus, Diana at Ephesus, all of the Ephesus, you know.
1: So yeah, I mean <clears throat> I think I think it's a good question. Um obviously the the bulk of them are gonna be goddesses or or famous like Imperial women, for example. I mean you do see under the Republic um, statues of like matronae statues uh, or busts of matronae rather um and often in this in the same way that there are um the sort of like veristic style of republican portraiture like mm-hmm. they're often women who are you know who have wrinkles and who are not idealized and some of that's about the role of the matron in society as like dispensing wisdom um uh, but I think it's also useful to think about, like, what is the function of a statue in Roman society? And certainly part of it's just, like, aesthetic and beautiful. Part of it is going to be things like cult statues and religious statues. But often, I mean, it's about, um, you know, like, celebrating an achievement. And so because of the the role that Roman women play, I mean, in a way, it makes sense that there's not going to be um, a lot of sculptures of particular mortal women um non imperial women. Um and rather just these types like the like the matron or um, you know, like the young bride or whatever, because that's just not, you know, they weren't looking to have equity in their in their statue representation, you know. Um and I think in in some ways it's analogous to literature, you can feel like their women are being used in an instrumental way. I I I like what you said, Shay, about um like characters or, or pit stops in in someone else's arc. But I also think that just because that's how the Romans have presented it doesn't mean that as readers and scholars and viewers, we can't say like, okay, well, what can we draw from this, you know, matron type sculpture? Or what can we draw from the way that these women are um, depicted as characters or as people in the literature? So, you know, in some ways, it's about a, recognizing the context that it's in, but also B, you know, using our agency as readers and thinkers to draw what, you know, to focus on what's most interesting to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and in sort of moving into the present, um, kind of with this history of gender inequality ingrained in ancient civilizations, how do we ensure that history sort of doesn't repeat itself in classrooms today? Um. And that, you know, there is a heightened inclusivity of female voices
2: in classics. Yeah, I mean, I think for me that comes a lot down to just like talking about it, talking about like what I, I was saying earlier, where I have run across people in my career that tend to veer away from anything ancient that has to do with women or queer people, and I don't think that that is beneficial for anyone. Uh, The only person that benefits is the person who is saying don't do it because it makes them uncomfortable. I don't enjoy that narrative. I don't think that that's something that we should propagate, and I do think that with most things in life, the things that make you question it and the things that make you uncomfortable are because they're the the dominant storyline in the world and you should question them because otherwise you're just flying with whatever someone's telling you to think. And just like ancient world, just like now, I don't think that just understanding things the way that they've presented them for years is necessarily the way to go. So talking about what exactly what you're doing is amazing. Like having people have conversations about things. That are very integral to how we act in our careers and how we move through the world. I find that amazing. And I'm glad there's people like you doing it.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I mean, I think that the more that um, these conversations become, you know, sort of a a normal and expected part of the field. The better. And I think the more that we, you know, continue to ask these questions, not just in a like women in ancient Rome unit, but sort of in, in every, um, situation or, or, uh, piece that we're looking at from the ancient world, we can say like, well, where were the women? Where were the enslaved people? Where were the people from lower classes or, or non-Roman, um, backgrounds and, and trying to weave these things like throughout your study of um of all parts of of ancient civilization um and I think the more that we can do that the m- I mean obviously there will always be backlash but the more that people um might get more comfortable with it and the more it will just become a natural part of of the field um.
0: all right thank you guys so much for being on my podcast it was amazing talking to you guys.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us on.
0: And that's all for this episode. We hope you enjoyed hearing about this group of women in antiquity. Make sure to follow us on Spotify and our Instagram at tbdpodcasts, no spaces, and the Owen podcast is a zero.
1: As always, our next episode is TBD, but you know where we'll be.
0: See you guys next time.